Now hear the word of the Lord from John chapter 13, verses 31 through 38. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, good morning, church. Uh, my name's Scott, and I'm the director of operations here at Sacred City. And I have the privilege of opening God's word uh, with y'all this morning. And currently, I am just grateful uh, for the health to be able to stand up here uh, long enough to be able to uh, preach this sermon because, man, I spent the last few days under the weather. So I apologize for the nasally sound of my voice this morning. Uh, but I assure you that I've done all in my power to be able to breathe normally uh, to the best of my abilities over the last few days. Well, uh, if you are new with us, like we've been talking about, uh, we love John's gospel. We're going to be in John's gospel. We've been there for a while. We took a break for Advent, and now we're going to be here uh, to the end. But we love John's gospel because it's all about Jesus, okay? And, and the author, uh, John, right, in, in John's gospel, he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's got this inside view, right? He's experienced the love of Jesus, and he gives us this behind-the-curtains view of Jesus' life, just like we're going to see this morning in the text. So last week, Justin spent some time talking about the transition from the first half of John's gospel to the second half, right? Uh, we're about to get to, uh, you know, it's what, the NFC-AFC championship games today, you know? Uh, at some point in time today, we're going to get from the first half to the second half. And in a football game, they're not that much different, okay? Uh, really, they're still playing football. Uh, maybe the coaches prepared a little bit different at halftime, but it's the same sport. Uh, the same things are happening on the field. Uh, in John's gospel, from the first half to the second half, we see a really dramatic change, we're seeing the life of Jesus play out in the first half of John's gospel. And in the second half, we see this complete shift to what's happening as Jesus takes his disciples in an upper room to prepare them for his death and his resurrection. There's this complete focus on Jesus going to die in the second half of John's gospel. As we lean into that second half, as we lean into this upper room discourse, as theologians call it, 
We're going to step into the first few verses of what I'm calling Jesus' last words to his disciples. But as we do that, we're going to have to do some vocabulary work. So let's put our toe in the water of the text for a second here. Look at verses 31 to 33 with me as we get started. It says, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God's glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going you cannot come. One of the vocabulary words that we're going to have to do some uh, work on this morning uh, is probably obvious to you. It says glorify, glorify, glorifying multiple times. We're going to talk about that a bit here before we even jump with both feet into the text. But the other one isn't here, but it's uh, implied and it's separation. So let's start with uh, the word separation. This text right in verse 31 starts out when he had gone out. Y'all, let me just say this. If you weren't here last week, you need to go back and listen to last week's sermon, all right? We talked in full about the betrayer, the one who had sat at table with Jesus, who had lived life with Jesus and had betrayed him. His name is Judas. So when it says, when he had gone out, it's referring to Judas, the betrayer. And when he's gone, when he's separated from this crew, and now it's just Jesus faithful, the process of Jesus' arrest, trial, and crucifixion is now set in motion. And now Jesus could speak to those who are truly his. Jesus is crystal clear at this point. He's about to be separated from his disciples. Another way of saying that is he's going to go to a place where they cannot come presently. Look at verse 33 again. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you. I'm still here with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Y'all, where Jesus is going, his disciples cannot come yet. Jesus had said this to the Jews in chapter 8, and the disciples didn't understand what he means, but we're going to talk a lot more about that next week. So that's the separation, okay? But this second vocabulary word for this morning as we put our toe in the water of the text is glorification. And Jesus flips the script on glory. Look how many times he says it. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. He's talking a lot about glory here. And I think we usually get mixed up when we're thinking about glory, especially when we lean into the end of Jesus' life here. When we think about glory, right, uh, uh, well, let, let's just be honest. When I think about glory, one of the first things that comes to mind is uh, Michael Jordan, you know, playing against the Utah Jazz in that moment. He's driving one way, and then he illegally pushes Byron Russell past him, right? And he, and he pulls up for that fadeaway jump shot, and he beats the Jazz all at once, right? When I'm thinking about glory, I'm thinking about moments like that, He's shining in all of his fullness, and it feels like that is glory. But I think 
Here in the text, what we see is Jesus flipping the script on glory. Maybe what we should think of, a little bit closer illustration to what he's getting after is a soldier, just a common soldier, being willing to go to battle and willing to give his life for a greater cause. You see, the glorification of Christ is connected with what appears to uh, human understanding, understanding as the very opposite of glory. Jesus is looking to the cross where he was beaten, mocked, spit on, shamed, and died as he speaks of glory. When Jesus speaks of glorification, he's saying three things here in the text. Look at verse 31. He's saying God is glorified in Jesus on the cross. We know that. The most God-glorifying moment in all of human history is Jesus on the cross. In verse 32, we see it says clearly that Jesus will be glorified by the Father through his resurrection, and he's going to be glorified for eternity with the Father. And in verse 32, it's also clear he's going to bring that about. God will do this without Delay. We need to think about glorification a little bit differently as we approach this text. This is what brought this illustration to mind for me this morning. I think you can tell a lot about what a person stands for from their last words. Think about this with me. I think you can tell a lot about what a person stands for from their final words. You see, it was June 6, 1755 in Coventry, Connecticut, when Nathan Hale was born. He was a teacher by trade, but he's best known for what he said after, his, after he joined his five brothers in the fight for independence against the British. Five of Nathan Hale's brothers fought the British at Lexington and Concord, Massachusetts on April 19, 1775. Nathan joined them on July 1st. From there, he quickly rose to the rank of captain in the military. He fought under General George Washington in New York as British General William Howe began a military buildup on Long Island. General George Washington took his army onto Manhattan Island at the Battle of Harlem Heights. Washington faced Howe in battle yet again, asked for a volunteer to go forward on a spy mission behind enemy lines, and guess who stepped forward? Nathan Hale steps forward. Disguised as a Dutch schoolmaster, Nathan Hale set out on his mission on September 10th. For a week, he gathered information on the position of British troops, but unfortunately, he was captured while returning to the American side. Because of incriminating papers Hale possessed, the British knew he was a spy. It was said that possibly his cousin, a, a British sympathizer under Howe's command, betrayed him. So the British leader, Howe, ordered young Hale to be hanged on the following day. On September 22nd, 1776, the day Patriot Nathan Hale was hanged, he spoke these famous words. Do y'all know what I'm gonna say? He said, I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. You see, I think we're going to need to remember these kind of words as we look at today's passage and the rest of Jesus' farewell discourse because you can learn a lot about what a person stands for from their final words. 
Today, we'll be looking at a text in which Jesus begins his farewell discourse. And this morning, I think God wants each one of us to hear as Jesus loved you, in the manner Jesus loved you. Simply love one another. My sermon title for this morning is Countercultural Love. As we delve into this text, I think we're going to see that the way Christianity moves forward is by us loving the way that Jesus loves. I think we're going to be challenged in thinking about that the way that we love others oftentimes is more cultural than countercultural. I think the love of Christ is going to press into our hearts, and we're going to see that Jesus loves us right through our flailing failures. And hopefully we'll land in our identity in Christ and in Christ we'll see that our love for one another will be noteworthy. It will distinguish us from others around us. Will y'all pray with me? God, even more so uh, than normal, I know that I am a broken human being uh, in need of your grace, that nothing of me this morning is going to benefit uh, your flock, but... God, even my physical uh, humanity, the, the power that I use to stand up here and, and, the, and the vocal cords that I use are hurting this morning. And so God, I pray that you would, uh, in a supernatural way, uh, empower me and speak through me this morning. Pray, God, that we would hear nothing of me and everything of you this morning. And God, I pray that your love would be put on display through this church, not merely on Sunday mornings, but in the everyday lives that we live throughout the week. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, here's where we're going to start. The way Christianity moves forward is by loving the way Jesus loves. You see, we need to begin this morning by feeling a little sense of urgency in this passage. Look at with me again at verse 32. It says, at once. In verse 3, it says, yet a little while. And if you were to jump down in verse 37... It's really clear. He says, I will lay down my life for you. You see, Peter misses a lot of things, church, right? <laughs> uh, seems like the dude is fumbling everywhere he goes. There's just words falling out of his mouth. Uh, he says the things that come to mind uh, in our minds oftentimes after Jesus says something. But when he doesn't miss it, you, you're like, okay, I think I was supposed to pick up on that. You see, this time he understood a little bit of what Jesus was saying. He knew that Jesus' death was imminent. This is why he rushes to, come, to saying back to him uh, that he would lay down his life for Jesus. I think we need to feel that sense of urgency in this passage in order to understand just how important this new command was at the beginning of Jesus' farewell discourse. You see, in Jesus' final opportunity to communicate with his followers who would move Christianity forward after he was departed from earth, the first thing Jesus did was to wash his disciples' feet. Or in his words, he loved them to the end. You see, Jesus' action of washing the disciples' feet was meant to put on display his love for them to the end. We know that because he said that and because those actions were followed up by significant words. 
See, I don't, I don't have red letters in this Bible, but many of us do. And, and the red letters tell us when Jesus said something. And the first thing Jesus chose to say after Judas left the room, after the betrayer was sent off, after this first domino tipped in this sequence of events that would lead to the crucifixion of Christ, were these. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I think it's easier to understand the significance of these words when we think about what Jesus chose not to say. Y'all think about this. Oftentimes, uh, I wonder if you could get in the locker room, you know, with, I'll I'll tip my hat to Justin here, with Coach Nick Saban, right, right before he is to pass the torch uh, of the program and everybody transferred, right, right before that moment, okay. I wonder what uh, Nick Saban said to his team, right? Great coaches uh, try and gather their teams in these kind of moments and pass the torch uh, when, when they're going to be separated from their teams and they say things uh, like, like things about faithfulness, right? Like you're gonna have to fight the good fight without me or, or you need to keep going and stick to the plan that I've laid out for you or, or they say things about legacy, like make me proud, right? Like as you carry my legacy forward. Y'all, but Jesus didn't start with anything like that. He chose to start his farewell discourse by saying, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another, to which we ask the question, what's so new about this commandment, Jesus, right? Like, haven't you been talking about loving one another uh, for a while? Hasn't um, actually the Bible been talking about this? Uh, If we were to look back in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, it says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Well, it's pretty clear that the content of this command is not what's new. Instead, the newness of this command comes in loving one another as I have loved you. It's in the manner with which Jesus has loved us, his disciples. You see, in washing the disciples' feet, Jesus loved them to the end, symbolizing how his blood would wash away their sins once and for all. The newness of this new commandment can only be understood in light of the finished work of Jesus Christ. God has always called his people to a life of neighbor love, but the new commandment presupposes a new paradigm. Jesus' own love to the point of death on a cross deepens and transforms these commands. Jesus' love is a love that goes the distance for those that he loves. Jesus' love is a love that lays down his life for the good of those he loves. And this is how he commands his followers to love others. These words, not a call to faithfulness, not a call to legacy, are the beginning of his farewell discourse as he seeks to prepare his disciples for his separation.
Maybe I haven't told you yet here at uh, Sacred City, but I have something I need to admit. I got a bit of a man crush on Paul Tripp, okay? I absolutely love the way that this dude speaks the gospel into my life. I love the way that he presses the implications of the gospel into my day-to-day life, and and I sincerely love his mustache as well, okay? And so in in that vein, uh, I think as we think about, right, looking at the cross of Christ as the premier example of the love of God toward us and, and this call to a new command to love in the manner with which he has loved us, I thought, who better to fill out our, our view of this love than my man, Paul Tripp, and his wonderful mustache. And so I got an email a few years back, he calls it Wednesday's Word, that he sent out. Uh, and, and it hopefully makes pregnant for us this idea of Jesus' love. He says, we get our best standard of love from the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. His sacrifice of love is the ultimate example of what love is and what love does. And then he lays out for us 24 things about what love is, okay? So stick with me. I I think if you're sitting here in the room and you're genuinely listening, uh, the power of the Holy Spirit is going to get you on at least one of these. He says love is, and look at the cross, through these things. Willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving. He says, love is being willing to have your life complicated by the needs and struggles of others without impatience or anger. Any parents in the room feeling that one? (laughs) He says, love is actively fighting the temptation to be critical and judgmental toward another while looking for ways to encourage and praise. Husbands, are you listening? He says, love is making a daily commitment to, the res- to resist the needless moments of conflict that come from pointing out and responding to minor offenses. They don't feel so minor in the moment, do they? He says, love is being lovingly honest and humble, or humbly approachable in times of misunderstanding. Love is being more committed to unity and understanding than you are to winning, that one's hard for me, accusing or being right. I really like winning, y'all. He says, love is making a daily commitment to admit your sin, weakness, and failure to resist the temptation to offer an excuse or shift the blame. Sounds like confessing our sins isn't something we should just be doing on Sunday mornings. He says, love is being willing when confronted by another to examine your heart rather than rising to your defense or shifting the focus. Love is making a daily commitment to grow in love so that the love you offer to another is increasingly selfless, mature, and patient. Love is being unwilling to do what is wrong when you have been wronged, but looking for concrete and specific ways to overcome evil with good. Y'all, we're not even halfway yet. Love is being a good student of another, looking for their physical, emotional, and spiritual needs so that in some way you can remove the burden, support them as they carry it, or encourage them along the way. It's, it's giving me your iPad this morning, Kev, so that I can preach off of it, because mine was dead, right? Love is being willing to invest the time necessary to discuss, examine, and understand the relational problems you face. Staying on task until the problem is removed or you've agreed upon a strategy of response. Love is being willing to always ask forgiveness and always being committed to grant forgiveness when it's requested. 
Love is recognizing the high value of trust in a relationship and being faithful to your promises and true to your word. Love is speaking kindly and gently even in moments of disagreement, refusing to attack the other person's character or assault their intelligence. Love is being unwilling to flatter, lie, manipulate, or deceive in any way in order to co-opt the other person into giving you what you want or doing something you want your way. Love is being unwilling to ask another person to be the source of your identity, meaning, or purpose, or inner sense of well-being while refusing to be the source of theirs. Whew, that really cancels Valentine's Day for a lot of people, huh? <laughs> Love is the willingness to have less free time, less sleep, and a busier schedule in order to be faithful to what God has called you to be and to do as a spouse, parent, neighbor, etc. You feel that, missional community leaders, right? Love is a commitment to say no to selfish instincts and to do everything that is within your ability to promote real unity, functional understanding, and active love in your relationships. Love is staying faithful to your commitment to treat one another with appreciation, respect, and grace, even in moments when the other person doesn't seem deserving or is unwilling to reciprocate. Love is the willingness to make regular and costly sacrifices for the sake of relationship without asking for anything in return or using your sacrifices to place the other person in your debt. Love is being unwilling to make any personal decision or choice that would harm a relationship, hurt the other person, or weaken the bond of trust between you. Love is refusing to be self-focused or demanding, but instead looking for specific ways to serve, support, and encourage, even when you are busy or tired. And love is daily admitting to yourself to the other people around you and God that you are unable to be driven by a cruciform love without God's protecting, providing, forgiving, rescuing, and delivering grace. I don't know about y'all, but to me, loving as Jesus loved sounds a lot like countercultural love, but honestly, sometimes even when we press into that, we start to feel like we've got to do something. It feels like it's gonna be on us. Our response actually is a lot like what we see from Peter in the text. Our response is more cultural than countercultural. You see, for those of us that have been married for a while, you're gonna need to testify to this later if you agree with me, okay? Before that, let's, let's, uh, let's look at the text, okay? So, so Jesus says this, right? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Feel that. Feel the profoundness of Jesus' statement right here at the beginning of this upper room discourse. They've just allowed, he's just allowed his betrayer to walk out of the room. The door closes. This is what Jesus says. And in response, Peter says, Lord, where are you going? Jesus is like, well, where, where I'm going, you cannot follow me, but you follow me afterward. And Peter's like, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay, my, I'll lay my life down for you. And Jesus goes on to tell him, that's actually not what's going to happen. You are going to betray me three times. You see, I think many of us, 
in response to thinking about Jesus' love, how much he loves us, and, and the call to love others the way that he loves us, respond like Peter. And, it, and, and that's honestly best, it's, it's really well uh, personified for us early on in our relationships. Think about uh, those of you that are married or those of you that have been married for a long time. Think about how you acted toward your spouse uh, in the first season, season of dating or courtship, Okay. Think about your first Valentine's Day or think about uh, maybe on the day that you proposed uh, to your spouse. For me, those moments are filled with me doing everything I could possibly do in my power to prove to Emily how much I loved her, right? On the first Valentine's Day uh, that we ever celebrated together, right, I hung curtains everywhere in our apartment. I made a special table. There was candles everywhere. I cooked the meal, okay? Uh, I made a cheesecake. Uh, still don't know how to do it to this day, but somehow did it that day. Went to all of this work in order to make a meal for her, probably because I didn't have enough dollars to take her out to a nice one, right? <laughs> I was saving all those for a ring. Or, or when you think about the day of our proposal, this was like a 12-hour ordeal, okay? The whole day was planned out. And then uh, we went to, you know, the state park in Cedar Falls. And then there was this whole path laid out. And there was six stops along the way because, you know, I thought we had been dating for six months. Turns out it was five months and like three weeks. I was a week off, okay? Uh, but I thought that it was six months. And there's this whole path laid out and each way at each spot there's a gift and there's a letter from someone you know somebody that meant a lot to her and we ended and the sixth letter was from me and I got down on my knee and I read this letter to her and I asked her to marry me and my friends are in the background setting off fireworks when she said yes so that when we kissed for the first time there was fireworks <laughs> I tell you what you just learned about that is that I worked really hard to prove to this one that I loved her. Did you learn anything in that about the love of Jesus? Probably not. <laughs> you see, what happens early on in our relationships is we put on display how much we want to prove our love to others rather than resting in the love of Jesus and extending that to those around us. You see, Peter jumped up and said, Jesus, I'll, 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 I'll die for you. And he wants to prove his love for Jesus because sometimes God's love toward us feels so full that we just can't sit in it. But we need to sit in it first, church. We need to receive it so that when we go about loving others, we don't do it in a cultural manner that proves our love but we do it in a countercultural way that puts on display the love of Jesus. You see, this is what I'm gonna call this morning countercultural love. Look at verses 36 and 37 with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me, but you follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Verse 38, Jesus answered, I will lay down my life. Uh, will you lay down your life for me? He's going to. But he says, before that, truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. One of them is to a middle school girl. 
I tell you what, our culture might not have a ton in common with the culture in the first century, but this is one thing that's not changed a bit. Peter's responding to the love of Jesus the same way anyone in our culture would have responded. Jesus had just loved him by washing his feet and then Jesus showed his love for Peter and the other disciples and let them know that his love was going to come to fruition in sacrificing himself for his followers. But instead of receiving that love, Peter blurts out, I'll lay down my life for you. You see, there's no way that Peter was gonna be able to earn the kind of love Jesus was showing him. So he makes one last ditch effort to earn Jesus' love, even though part of him probably understood that wasn't even possible. Y'all, there's a subtle difference going on here. It may seem like a subtle difference between working hard to love others in order to earn their affections and loving others because he first loved us. But that subtle difference can be the difference between obedience to Christ and selfish disobedience. You see, one puts your love on display while the other puts Jesus' love on display. I want you to think about the arenas in your life in which you work hard to love others to earn their affections and how this limits us from loving others the way that Jesus loved us. Think about your relationship with your kids. Do you work hard loving your children because you want them to love you in return? If so, do you see how this could keep you from saying some of the hardest things that you're gonna need to say to your kids in order to discipline them and bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? If we just seek to get them to love us back, we're never going to say the hard truths that we need to speak into their lives. Do you work hard loving your significant other, trying to earn their affection the way that I did early on, clearly in our marriage? Do you see how that could put you on a pedestal in their life? instead of raising up Jesus before them? What about uh, your coworkers? Do you work hard to love others in your workplace in order to love them or in order to get their love in return? You know, you, you might just exactly get what you worked for, but wouldn't it be better for both of you and them if they saw Jesus' love on display and learned to love him instead of you? Do you work hard to love God, doing things to prove to God and even yourself that you love him just as much as he loves you? Y'all, that kind of living is simply not in line with the gospel. It's not. We need to give up trying to love others in order to earn their affection And we need to pick up and put on receiving the love of Christ and then extending that love to those around us. I wonder if you've ever noticed how people will do the craziest things to get on a big screen. How many, how many of y'all have been to, you know, Carver Hawkeye Arena or you've been to Kinnick and, you know, they have those Delta Dental moments, you know, uh, or they have the Panchero's Burrito Push, right? And you're recognizing, oh, these people right there, they must really want to get on the screen, right? Because the people that they put on the screen are either the closest one to the camera, that's some of the people, right? Or they're the people doing the craziest things in the entire arena, Right? 
When they give you an opportunity to get on screen, you'll notice who those people are, and they will just start flailing about to try and get themselves up on that screen. Think about this with me. The way that we work hard to earn the affections of others and of God, it's kind of like flailing around to get on a TV broadcast to get two seconds on a screen, isn't it? Yes, maybe it works, and that person ends up on TV, but usually the person flailing around up there on the screen looks a bit silly, to put it nicely. And sometimes that person flailing around in the background forgets where they are, falls down, or runs into something looking like a total failure on a big screen. Sacred City, God loved Peter, not in spite of his failures, but right through his failures. You see, Jesus knew that Peter was going to deny him three times. We see it in our text. And he loved him before he even denied him. Jesus loved him the moment he denied him to that teenage girl. Jesus pronounced his love to Peter three times, if you look forward in John 21, after Peter had denied him three times. Jesus loved Peter right through his flailing failures. Jesus' love for Peter is not contingent on his success or his failure. Jesus' love for Peter cannot be paid back or earned. Jesus loves Peter just because. He loves him because he loves him. I want you to dial up your greatest moment of failure, the one that the enemy keeps bringing up over and over again in your life. I want you to bring it up right here, right now, and I want you to receive the love of Jesus and let him wash it away. Because even in your greatest moment of failure, God the Father looks on you in, in the person of Jesus. If you have repented of your sin and received Christ, if you are in Christ, he looks on you even in that moment and says, well done, good and faithful servant. And he doesn't look at you and say that because of what you've done or to have anything to do with your failure, but because Jesus has gone to the cross for you. Jesus has proven himself for you. Jesus, in your place, has lived the life you couldn't live, died the death you deserved, and risen from the grave to conquer death, sin, and Satan. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the beauty of of the gospel. God also loves you right through your failures. Even if you would characterize yourself as a failure, God looks on you and says, no, you're in my son. I love you. Maybe you just think like you're gonna fail your, your oh gosh, sorry, I lost my spot there for a second. Maybe you feel like a failure presently. Maybe you are wondering about this failure that's coming in the future. Maybe you've failed in the past. In, in any of those situations, you're probably right. Just like Peter, your future actions will fall short. And that may even happen before the rooster crows tomorrow morning. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus' love for you does not come with strings attached. He's not going to cease loving you even if a middle school aged girl uh, causes you to say you're not a follower of Jesus. 
Jesus loves you to the end. Jesus does not love us right up to the brink of our failures or in spite of our failures. He loves us right through our failing, flailing failures. So come back to the, the meat of the text with me. Look at verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. First John four nineteen simply says it like this. We love because he first loved us. Jesus is not merely telling us to mimic his love, but to be empowered by his love to love others as he loves us. Sacred City, because God loves us, in the midst of our failures, when we totally blew it, even though we were hard cases, even though we brought nothing to the table in our relationship with God, when our actions negatively reflected on him, while we were enemies, scripture says, when we were super different from him, and when we were unlovely, because God loved us in those moments, we then, if we receive his love and are empowered by his love, can love our brothers and sisters in Christ here and now, in the midst of their failures. We can love our brothers and sisters in Christ when they totally blew it. Even though they might be hard cases. Even though it might seem like they bring nothing to the table in our relationship with, uh, with them. When their actions negatively reflect on us while they're acting like enemies. Even if they're super different from us and when they seem unlovely, this is the power of the love of Christ. And this love, this Jesus-empowered love will be noteworthy to all who see it. Did you hear that in verse 35? By this, all people will know. There's a distinguishing factor here. All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love, he says, must be the distinguishing mark of Jesus' disciples. As we receive Jesus' love and then extend it to others, he says this will be noteworthy. Not merely because it's countercultural, but because through this, Jesus' love is put on display. He says it's put on display to all who see it. Sacred City, I want you to think about something with me before we wrap and go to the end here. It is true that Jesus' love will be put on display through our love for one another. Jesus is here saying at the beginning of his farewell discourse that the distinguishing mark of a disciple is the way we love one another. And this might seem incredibly simple, but it's also profound. So I want to be sure that we don't miss it. Jesus is here expecting that everyone who puts their faith in him will have a one another. Do you see that? Jesus is not talking to disciples who think that they can be free agent Christians and they can do church uh, on Sunday mornings from their homes watching Facebook Live. Jesus is not talking to Christians who can roll into church on Sunday morning, sit in the back, uh, make sure you get out of here before you have to shake Justin's hand and, and then come back the next week. That's not who he's talking to here. He's talking to people that have a one another. Because many people in our culture, you know, the reason I say that is because many people in our culture miss that, right? 
We live in the most individualistic era that has ever been. People think it's enough to be connected on social media. I don't need real connections in my life. But how can you love one another the way that Jesus is talking about when those are your only connections? Church, I'm gonna harp on this a bit because I know that even some of us here have slipped into this mindset. Jesus has loved us with an incredible love. And on top of that, he's telling us here this morning that the distinguishing mark of a disciple is the way that we love one another. So the question I wanna ask you simply is, who is your one another? Here at Sacred City Church, we call them missional communities. Who is your one another? If you're part of this church and you've not yet joined a missional community, I know I talk about it every week up here in my announcements, right? But if that's, if that's you and you've yet to put that into practice, your next step in discipleship is to join one this morning. This an MC, not here on Sunday mornings, but in a missional community in someone's home is the context where this kind of countercultural love can best be put into practice in this church. Missional communities are where the church is fleshed out into a family. Missional communities are the context in our church where we most actively seek to love and serve one another. And if that's true, if we're really living that out and loving one another in the manner that Jesus has loved us, then who's gonna see it? I want you to think about this as we close. Y'all know that song? This little light of mine, right? I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. What about the next verse says, hide it under a bushel. No, (laughs) we're not doing that. You know what happens for so many of us? We hide it under a bushel. That's what we do. Instead of what Matthew 5, 16 says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father is in heaven. Instead of letting us love one another the way that he loves us, we go off and we do our free agent Christian thing and we try and do it on our own and we, we don't even hide it under a bushel. We just go out. Our light's so dim by ourselves. We've got to love one another. We've got to practice Jesus' love in a missional community because then our light will flame up big enough for others to see. And the only way they're gonna see it is if there's people, get this, people that don't yet know Jesus actively being a part and around the things that we're doing, right? We need to live on mission in such a way that our missional communities and our lives are actually engaging not yet Christians so they can see the way that Mike Galliard comes over to my house and he helps me fix everything that I ever needed fixed. You know, they need to be able to see the way that uh, there was a missional community of people coming to the Gaskills home and literally people that we had never met before moving us and, and, and planning our home and building our furniture so that my kids had a place to sleep that night before we'd ever met those people. This is what the church does. But we've got to do it in such a way that we give the not yet Christians a front row seat to the way that we love one another or they won't even know whose love is being put on display. You see, if the greatest acts of love that we're doing for one another are happening inside the doors of our church or inside our missional communities throughout the week, then we better get some people who don't yet know Jesus in here with us, amen? 
Well, Nathan Hale's famous last words were, I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. Y'all, Jesus, on the other hand, when beginning his farewell discourse and preparing his people for his departure said, a new command I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have one love for one another. One thing's for sure, you can learn a lot about what a person stands for from their final words. Will y'all pray with me? God, I pray that even now in this covenant renewal gathering that we would be renewed and refreshed in your love. God, I pray that uh, through our singing this morning that we would, be, would have been reminded of the deep, deep love that you have for us and how that was expressed toward us in you sending your son, Jesus. God, I pray that there's folks that came in here this morning uh, just wondering, doubting, like Joel was said, in that love that you would have just shined the light of your love so brightly into our hearts that we couldn't help but see it. And as we turn towards the Lord's Supper this morning, I pray, God, that we would feast on your love and the bread, that we would understand the incredible sacrifice that Jesus made in laying down his body. I pray that in the blood, in the, in the wine or the juice, that we would see the incredible grace of God shown to us in, in the new covenant, that we don't uh, any longer have to live in the old covenant, but that this new covenant of grace initiates for us a new relationship in which you show us your grace and mercy that we can turn from our life of sin and that even in our sinfulness that you loved us with this powerful love. God, we ask that right now you would prepare us to take of this supper. Father of mercies, thank you for the gift of this bread, which we confess provides us with the body of your son, Jesus Christ. We ask you to enable us to eat of it in faith and to be made more fully members of his heavenly body through Christ our Lord. Father of mercies, thank you for the gift of this wine, which we confess provides us with the blood of your son, our savior. We, we ask you to enable us to drink of it in faith and to be conformed more and more to the image of his death through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.